Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash YZP. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice peer-to-peer panel discussion on COVID-19. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Andrew Ustinowski and Dr. David Allen Wohl. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, this is Dr. David Wohl. I'm a professor of medicine at the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Welcome to this activity on managing COVID-19 in hospitalized patients. I'm pleased to have joined me today in this discussion my colleague, Dr. Andrew Ustinowski from the North Manchester General Hospital at the University of Manchester in Manchester, United Kingdom. Andrew, welcome. Well, thanks very much for the invite. I'm very much looking forward to what we're going to be discussing. Well, let's jump right into it, Andrew. So we know about the natural history of SARS-CoV-2 infection, having observed this over the last couple of years. So we've understood that there's phases, if you will, of the natural history of COVID-19. So thoughts about what you've understood or what you've appreciated as we've learned more and more about this natural progression of SARS-CoV-2? And I think it's a really important question, actually, because it's informed right from the very beginning of the COVID pandemic, our treatment strategies. So it was, it was realized quite early on that the initial phase of illness was largely driven by the virus itself and viral replication. But then a subset of individuals develop an inflammatory response, which can then become uncontrolled. And people have used terminologies like cytokine storms, etc. And that causes a lot of pneumonitis, a lot of inflammation and is largely responsible for people ending up on intensive care being ventilated. And so we've had this two phases, really, which we've discussed, the initial phase being viral replication, the later phase being predominantly inflammatory with perhaps very little or if any viral replication. The original descriptions were maybe the viral phase is seven days or 10 days long and therefore give antivirals in that window. I personally feel that putting a defined time point on it um, is missing the point. There's a lot of heterogeneity uh, out there. And um, really, we need to be more specific about treating the individual in front of us rather than the artificial number of days. But that's my take on it. What about you, David? Yeah, I think you're right, Andrew. I think this is a framework and it helps us understand a little bit about what's going on in an individual patient at each part of the course of their infection. There's tremendous overlap. Certainly people within the first few days of their SARS-CoV-2 infection have some inflammation. And there can be people, especially immunocompromised folks who are in the ICU, who still have viral replication going on, causing cellular damage. So we don't want this to be strictly defined, but you have to take you know, the individual in front of you and think about where they are. This is not just so we understand the natural history, but it also helps us guide our therapeutics. I think those are really important points. And I think you're right. You know, there's not a dichotomous, it's viral, and then overnight it switches to inflammatory. There's a component of both at all stages. Exactly. And, and as we can talk about, sometimes if you use an anti-inflammatory too early, um, then you might blunt an immune response that's actually helpful rather than deleterious. 
It's not everyone that goes down the pathway of their inflammation causing them to have problems. It could be very helpful. In fact, it's essential to recovery from SARS-CoV-2 infection and from COVID-19. But some people go down a pathway where it's exuberant. And, and we've seen this, of course, in other diseases, other viral diseases. And so we, we have to understand the balance and where there's a tipping point. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's where we've still got a lot to learn, actually. It's difficult to predict early on who will develop that inflammatory response and end up in hospital or being ventilated, et cetera. And that brings in a next question, really, of, of we can't say for an individual in front of us who's necessarily going to progress, but we do know that there are risk factors um, in patients that make it more likely they'll develop severe disease. So give me your take on that, David. We certainly heard from the very first days from Wuhan about people who seem to be at greater risk for severe COVID-19. And many of those factors continue to remain operative even almost three years later. So I'd say the number one thing that I think all of us have appreciated is the older you are, the more risk you are at for developing severe COVID-19. Again, this follows a pathway we've seen with other respiratory viral illnesses, so this is not too surprising, but it is profound. And as you know, in my country, three quarters of you know, the first you know, hundreds of thousands of people who died were older individuals. So age is really important. You're quite right. There are groups uh, or, or age bands that particularly I'm concerned about. Um, originally, it was the over 75s, but actually I'd probably say over 65s and possibly over 55s with comorbidities, with piling up comorbidities. Once someone is below 50, I'm personally less concerned, though that isn't uh, a definite. You know, we've had people who are fit and healthy in their 20s who've ended up being extremely unwell. So it's just a proportions thing. I'd say the next thing more recently, of course, as we know, is vaccination status. And this, this almost is as profound. And when they're coupled, it's even more devastating. But in my country, and I know in the UK, certainly the lion's share of people who are ending up in hospital, especially in the ICU, who are sick, you know, with COVID-19, from COVID-19, are unvaccinated people. I'd like your thoughts about this and how we've kind of honed down on some of the contributing risk factors. Because in the beginning, like we said, things like hypertension were considered you know, a risk factor, but we've, we've understood it's not just simply being hypertensive. There are other comorbidities. And I'd like to get your take on that. Comorbidities that you think really either individually or in combination place people at even greater risk of severe COVID-19. My take on that is really people with pre-existing lung disease, and, and most commonly in my practice, that would be chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, perhaps asthma, um, they do poorly. And undoubtedly, people with other lung diseases, whether it's fibrotic lung diseases, etc., they just don't necessarily have the reserve to be able to cope with this infection. Um, I think chronic cardiovascular disease, you've mentioned hypertension. I think it's still there. I don't really understand why hypertension was flagged up so early and remains flagged up compared to other chronic cardiovascular disease. Um, but the other big one that I'd point out in my practice anyway is obesity. Uh, when I come onto a ward and I see someone, and if they are significantly obese, perhaps older, perhaps got lung problems, then I'm much more worried than someone who is, has a normal BMI. Yeah, I think in some of these things, maybe like hypertension, maybe like type 2 diabetes, they may be surrogates for things like obesity that, that may be more operative. So there may be some con confounding here, but I agree with you. Just having one, even diabetes or even obesity, 
really doesn't get you to be at extremely high risk. But when we see two, three, four factors together, which in, again, in the United States, it's pretty easy to get to tick the box of obesity because so many people in the United States are overweight or obese, add on unvaccinated status, add on type two diabetes, add on immunosuppressing drugs, especially those that affect B cell function. Some of the sickest people I've seen who've been younger are those who are on agents that inhibit B cell replication and response. So that's a special category of people. But HIV infection that's well compensated, high CD4 count, no, we don't see that. Even people on lesser um, chemotherapy or people who are on immunosuppression, we don't see it as much. It's really pretty profound and those extremes of age that we talked about. So we've understood a lot more about the spectrum of the natural history of SARS-CoV-2 infection. What do we know about variants and viral load and disease severity? Yeah, and I'd be interested in your take on this as well. In practice, I don't look at viral loads. It isn't something which actually informs my decision-making process. It is really looking at the individual in front of me, what oxygen they're requiring, what other comorbidities they've got which predict perhaps a worse outcome that we've been chatting about. Yeah, we've, we've gone through this back and forth at my academic medical center about whether or not our labs should report viral load often in um, cycle threshold, in, in CT value. And the higher the count, the fewer cycles you need. So a low cycle threshold, a low CT value indicates a lot of virus. So we've talked about whether or not to you know, present this information to clinicians. We've taken a middle road where we do, but with a big disclaimer. I could say we don't really use it acutely in people who are coming in. Certainly, if someone has a very low cycle threshold, we go, wow. Um, but it doesn't really mean too much because that person's sick, regardless of the viral load that they have. Later on, there's some finessing of whether or not the CT value tells us a little bit more about other things. Certainly, probably, if you look, as you said, in epidemiological terms and research studies, a higher viral load likely portends more problems. And this relates to a second thing, which is uh, antibody status. Um, and again, we don't generally check this, uh, although there may be some situations where we do if it's going to guide our therapeutics. But interestingly, those who are sick with COVID-19, sick enough to be hospitalized, who have not mounted an immune response, not too surprisingly, don't seem to do as well and have higher viral load. So it's tied, the virology is tied to the immunology, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and we're we're with you. We don't tend to use the um, antibody status much. We did for a while where it informed some of our decisions about giving monoclonal antibody therapy to inpatients, um, but we wouldn't do it otherwise. And actually, we no longer use that monoclonal antibody in therapy because it's less effective against um, the Omicron wave. In terms of your comments about not much difference between the different variants. I, I'd agree with that. I think there possibly are subtle differences, but it's actually quite hard to work those out because we have a different population now. We have a vaccinated population compared to the earlier waves where more people were unvaccinated. And we talked a lot about inflammation, the severe illness that we see during um, more advanced COVID-19 and people who are severely or critically ill. Do you measure markers of inflammation at your hospital? The only one we do measure is C-reactive protein, the CRP. There's a, a large study called the recovery study that used that as a criteria on whether we give certain therapies in people who are more acutely unwell. So, so we use that at the early stages when there was a lot of interest and people were trying to find their feet. We did send off D-dimers and we did send off ferritins and a whole variety. But again, in our practice, we found that actually it didn't impact on the decision-making process. The only test that we really look at in that regard is the C-reactive protein. 
Yeah, same here. I We do certainly bundle this with some other inflammatory markers that I think are really just augmenting what we learn with CRP. And we use it the same way to help guide our therapeutics. So I think, you know, in wrapping this up, this has been very helpful. And I think there's a lot of concordance between what we do here on this side of the Atlantic and what, what you are doing there. Uh, but I, I do think that we've learned quite a bit. And I do think people also, um, it's very hard to grasp what's your, any one individual's risk for developing severe or critical COVID-19. And the good news is for most of us, it's fairly low. But when you do see this preponderance, this piling of risk under vaccination or no vaccination, older age, obesity, comorbid conditions or medications that are immunosuppressive in a particular way that you mentioned, we're not talking about a 1% risk. We're talking many fold higher, um, order a magnitude higher, I would say, for some of those categories. So the risk gets very real very quickly, especially when we have a variant that has spread so widely as Omicron and maybe what we're seeing now with BA2. Inflammation becomes operative pretty quickly in a lot of sick people and that we have that as a target as well. And we shift our focus from antivirals to anti-inflammatories, as you so eloquently stated. So I think that does help us understand more than we understood maybe a year and a half ago. And that's why I think we're seeing some of the survival rates improve and why we've done a better job with more arrows in our quiver than we had early on when it was really devastating. So thank you for sharing your, your impressions. And it's good to hear that we're doing things more uh, together than we are differently. Great. Thanks very much. Hello, I'm Professor Andy Yustinoski, based at the North Manchester General Hospital in Manchester in the UK, I work in infectious diseases. And it's a real pleasure um, to introduce my co-host, uh, Professor David Well, who's a professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And what we're going to be talking about is a little bit more about treatments and interventions we can do for individuals with COVID-19. And we've learned an awful lot over the last two and a bit years. So let me start off asking you a question, David. How's your management of patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19 changed over that period? So we've come a really long way. I think one of the things that has helped us is understanding the inflammatory component, because the response to inflammation is something we are better able to handle then especially early in the epidemic, then the virus and the replicating virus. We didn't have the tools available to stop that virus from replicating, but we were able to help stem some of the damage that the inflammatory response was doing. You mentioned dexamethasone. To me, that's probably the, the key finding of the research so far. Other than the holistic care of an individual, oxygenation, antithrombotics, et cetera, um, dexamethasone is the one thing that's made the biggest difference. And, and we really give it to everybody who has an oxygen requirement, regardless of any other issues. Is it used so commonly in your setting? Absolutely. And it's used, you know, rarely um, alone. Um, it, it's used with other therapeutics, as, we've, or as we're going to talk about. I do think something that's happened, though, um, and, and this, this is something we're working hard to try to stem, is the use of uh, corticosteroids as an outpatient um, therapeutic. Um, because I think what, very, what people sometimes miss from the recovery trial was that there was at least a trend, if not more, for those who did not require oxygen, who got the corticosteroid to actually do worse. So unless there's a reactive airway component or a really compelling reason 
to use corticosteroids. We should not be using corticosteroids early in people who do not require oxygen, but subsequently, once oxygen is required, um, then I think we've, we've learned very quickly that dexamethasone uh, makes a lot of sense. You're quite right. In the recovery study, unless you needed supplemental oxygen, there wasn't a benefit. In fact, there was a numerical trend to, to worsening. And if we take that theme a bit further on, and, and you've mentioned it before, all those medications that we were perhaps using in the first wave in desperation that are proven not to be efficacious, it's really important to list those really. It's the chloroquines, the hydroxychloroquines, no benefit. Uh, boosted lopinavir, no benefit. I've not been convinced of any benefit of ivermectin, um, azithromycin, doxycycline. It's, it's almost as important to know what doesn't work as to know what does work. Uh, fl fluvoxamine may be an exception, that one that's still a little out there. I think that there's some indications we should be completely fair. So I think that's been really key for me is that there has been some, some fancy medicines and some not so fancy medicines that have been explored that turn out to work. Taking it a step further, the big difference over the last maybe year, not even, is the application of other anti-inflammatories. Again, spurred on by some really good clinical trials, numerous clinical trials, so like tocilizumab particularly. So your thoughts about positioning tosi in people who are, have already gotten dexamethasone but are still critically ill? Some of the early data on tocilizumab actually didn't necessarily show a benefit. Now, whether that was because people weren't already on steroids, whether it was different designs, et cetera, but then we had some large-scale studies that did show benefit. And to me, the, the benefit you can consider in two different ways um, uh, or two different groups. One is those individuals on intensive care and how we use um, tocilizumab or cerilumab if, if um, tocilizumab is not available in intensive care in the UK is if you uh, are ending up in there being mechanically ventilated within the first 48 hours, we would give the majority of people tocilizumab. In the non-intensive care setting, um, then it would be people with severe disease needing supplemental oxygen. But we have a cutoff of a C-reactive protein of 75, which is based actually on that study we mentioned, the recovery study. So if we have someone who has a CRP more than 75, with no obvious other reasons behind it, then we would be strongly considering those individuals for tocilizumab as well and not requiring them to be ventilated. But I know this is one particular issue where different hospitals, different countries, different regions vary a lot. What's your current practice of using tocilizumab? Yeah, we've swung a little bit both ways. So early on, it was just the setting you talked about, someone admitted to the ICU, using it very um, um, acutely. Uh, soon after that admission to the intensive care unit within the first 24 hours or so, and not so much on our ward, almost not at all. Um, and then looking at some of the data and additional data that we got from recovery and others, um, I and others pushed to start using it on the ward in people who are advancing towards severe critically ill disease, um, but had not yet ended up in the ICU. And getting the ward team to accept giving TOSI on the ward that's now standard practice. So as you said, CRP 75 or above and requiring more oxygen despite other measures such as dexamethasone, that's a person you're going to use it to try to keep them out of the ICU. And as we've seen over the last six months or so, there's more data supporting the use of tocilizumab. So I feel more confident in it. The other thing we've seen is that there's not been as much harm and our concern about opportunistic infections, fungal infections, that sepsis that kind of stayed our hand early on 
turns out that that's not a very high risk. Where it's also been all over the place is antivirals, to be honest with you. And remdesivir has been one we've had probably most of our time um, spent talking about where's the sweet spot. And over the last two years, I can tell you, it's really moved to what I'll call the left from the right. You know, where we would use it in people coming into the ICU and getting ventilated or getting on ECMO. I think the clinical trials have shown us consistently that you may disagree about some things with remdesivir. I think we can all agree on the right side of the spectrum. It's not going to work. Um, And so that's too late. I think the closer you can get it to the left side towards infection, the better. So early in hospitalization, and even as we're learning, maybe even pre-hospitalization, but those who are coming in um, even before they need oxygen or on just minimal oxygen, that's when we're still in that replication phase where we might stem or blunt that inflammatory response, the triggers for the inflammatory response that could be deleterious. How about you? Yeah, no, absolutely. Very, very aligned with your thinking. The earlier you can give it, the better. If we look at herpes simplex treatment, if we look at influenza treatment, we know giving it early, giving an antiviral early is when it works. And actually giving an antiviral later has no efficacy at all in a lot of those diseases. So it's not a surprise. Um, and we would be thinking about it as someone comes through the emergency department and commencing them on remdesivir. The other antivirals that are out there have largely shown efficacy in the non-hospitalized setting, the community setting, to prevent people coming into hospital. And so remdesivir is still our key antiviral once someone comes into hospital. Well, maybe I could throw a case at you, and then we can kind of tease us apart given what we've just talked about. So here is a 79-year-old woman, so red flag already. She's, she's elderly. Um, she has an immune system that's older regardless of her physical condition. That's a real concern. She's at high risk for doing very poorly. She has no other major risk factors, which is fantastic, but she does come in, unfortunately, with pneumonia from SARS-CoV-2 and requiring a, a good amount of oxygen, although um, not mechanical Um, administered oxygen. So just through nasal prongs. She does have a CRP that's over 75. So here's a woman. She's probably on a little bit of what we call the precipice, right? She could do well or she may not do well. So in your standard approach in your hospital, um, can you share it with me? So I think it's always important to think about the holistic care to begin with. It's very easy to latch onto the dexamethasones and the remdesivirs, but actually what's really important is oxygenation. Um, is anticoagulation, uh, avoiding um, unnecessary use of antibacterials. Then, because she's on oxygen, by the recovery study we've mentioned, absolutely dexamethasone. And there are very few contraindications to dexamethasone. And just to put figures on the the efficacy, when the data first came out, it said that in someone like this, um, ward-based, the number needed to treat to save a life was 25. So you only need to treat 25 people in this setting with dexamethasone to save one patient. On the intensive care setting, I think it was number needed to treat of eight. So you only need to treat eight people to save a life. Dexamethasone, absolutely vital. Then what do we do next? Well, remdesivir is an interesting one because I think you said she's maybe seven, 10 days into illness, which is the the kind of tipping point where people start thinking, oh, well, we've kind of, we're bypassed the viral replication phase and we're we're really inflammatory now instead. I think it is a little bit dangerous to be so categorical about that. Um, If she's looking like she's not doing well, then I'm tempted to go for remdesivir. We do have commissioning guidelines, which will disincentivize us 
using remdesivir once it gets a bit longer than this, but I'd be tempted on the remdesivir side. And then the last agent that I'd be thinking about um, in this particular patient would be tocilizumab. So she has a high CRP, she's that seven to 10 days into therapy, and I would be tempted to give tocilizumab if there wasn't an obvious contraindication. So that's the kind of route we'd be going. Medicine which has an evidence base now, which we haven't touched on yet, which I know some people consider is baricitinib. Now, it's not something we've really adopted as yet, even though the evidence is becoming stronger. Yeah, no, that's really very much consistent with what we would do. I think this person coming to our hospital for the first 24 hours would get remdesivir and would get dexamethasone. I think after that, if we're not seeing the response, that's when we might reach for tocilizumab. At our hospital over the last year or so, whether or not we use tocilizumab versus baricitinib depends upon availability. And I think we've used them almost interchangeably, certainly not together. But there have been times where we've been having shortages of tocilizumab where we have used baricitinib. So I think for us, again, it's sort of evolving. The other thing I'll say about remdesivir, and again, I, I think that there is a sweet spot where it's, it seems most beneficial. The good news too is we, we haven't found a whole lot of toxicity. I'd rather overuse it than underuse it in this particular circumstance, in this particular pandemic. So I, I'm with you. I think try and get people onto studies if your site is active in studies. And particularly areas of interest would be combination therapies, which includes combination anti-inflammatories, combination antivirals, combinations of neutralizing antibodies or antivirals, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot still to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the best way to um, uh, deal with and manage situations of, of um, critically ill people with COVID-19 is to prevent them from getting that sick in the first place. And I do think that's where some of these newer agents, these oral therapies, and even some of the newer monoclonals that still have activity, that's going to be really important. And so here in, in my country, we have already started implicate, implementing over the last couple of weeks, test and treat, where people can get a rapid test at a, a pharmacy, other places, and then be prescribed on the spot um, oral therapy that they could take right then and there if appropriate, if they are at risk severe for severe COVID-19. I think that's brilliant. And I think that's going to make a huge difference if we can roll it out and scale it up. And your system might be able to do that better than our fragmented system here. But I think the time to treat, um, I think we've been treating way too late, even as an outpatient. So there's a lot we're going to learn. There's a lot we're going to do that's probably going to be different a year from now. Um, but I agree with you completely. Research is key. We won't find out those answers unless people study it. Our setting isn't quite so good at the rapid test and treat. We do have access to oral antivirals and, and infusions of monoclonals for people in the community at risk of progressing. But ideally, what we want to do is prevent people becoming hospitalized or even prevent people becoming unwell in the first place. Agreed. Amen. Thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. And thanks to all of you for listening. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.